My name is Richard Morales, and I want to welcome you to The Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspectives of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. This week, we'll be having a conversation with Vanessa and David Sloan. Vanessa Sloan is a director and co-founder of Life Support Alliance. She is a recognized veteran of more than 25 years in the prison reform movement. She's also the editor of the California Lifer newsletter and is married to David Sloan, a paroled lifer. David served over 23 years of a life sentence in the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. He provides a unique perspective to challenges that people face after serving life sentences. While on parole himself, David was approved to return to several prisons as one of Life Support Alliance's program facilitators. Life Support Alliance's workshops are for people with life sentences who are working for their freedom. I want to welcome uh, Vanessa and David Sloan uh, to the Prison Post podcast. We're so grateful that you're here. Thank you very much for joining us today. This is our first one, and we're really excited to have you as our guest. Um, you know, my coach used to say, state the obvious. And it was a tool to use for coaching, state the obvious. And something that's obvious in the room today is that uh, I myself was sentenced to 25 years to life in, at, in 1998. My co-host, Jason Bryant, was sentenced to 26 years to life in 1999. We both spent all of our 20s and all of our 30s in prison, over 20 years of our lives. And to be sitting here with you, Jason, after three and a half months of being home, me after 16, 16 months of being home, is really a blessing. It seems like a miracle to be in uh, Nate Darling's uh, Darling Podcast Studio here in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. I've never lived in Sacramento, Sacramento my whole life. And to be here with you really just feels like a miracle. So thank you so much for being our first guest on the Prison Post podcast. We're loving it. I'm so glad to see you guys home. All of you guys come home. Thank you. It's what we're working for. Thank you so much, Vanessa. I, I want to sh- start off with a, sh- a story. You know, like I shared, um, for the first 10 years of being in, um, I really didn't have much hope of ever getting out. Um, I remember the days of Gray Davis when he said that the only way a lifer will ever leave prison is in a pine box. And for a while there, I believed him. And then I started working on changing my life. And a lot of my friends began doing the same thing. And I remember your newsletter. I have a friend that volunteers for your organization. His name's Gary. And he used to send me the lifer line. Mm -hmm. And then I remember the California lifer newsletter. And I only had a subscription of that for one year. I was talking to one of our, one of our colleagues, uh, Matthew Braden, you probably know his mom, Judy Honorato, mm-hmm. and she, she, he had a subscription for years. And I remember always trying to find the guy who had a subscription to, to your newsletter and saying, can I get in line? Can I get in line? <laughs> and sometimes I'd, sometimes I'd be sixth, sometimes I'd be 10th. But when I finally got it, I would wait for my cellmate, my celly to go to sleep. And so it would be nice and quiet. And I remember, I mean, for those uh, of our listeners or, or our followers who, who don't know about the California Lifer newsletter, it's, it's probably the best newsletter that I've ever, I've ever seen, I've ever had my hands on while I was incarcerated for 20 years. And it has everything that a lifer needs to know. And I just remember, I mean, the, the, the letters are super tiny. I mean, <laughs> the fine print. And it has everything about the latest laws. And I used to read that thing so closely, hoping that something applied to me. Yeah. I was hoping that something would apply to me. And, and I remember, you know, Prop, Prop 36 and Prop 47 and SB 260, SB 261, Prop 57. And finally when Prop 57 came in there and SB 261, it opened up the doors for me to get to board a little bit sooner instead of in 19 years and three months instead of 21 years. Right. And I just want to say that we're so grateful on behalf of myself, on behalf of lifers, my fellow incarcerated brothers and sisters on the inside, that you offer hope through that newsletter, through the work that you do for lifers. So much hope. I remember the movie Shawshank Redemption with Morgan Freeman and yeah. Tim Robbins and as Andy Dufresne. And I remember Morgan Freeman saying that hope is dangerous. But for me, hope was never dangerous. And I remember when lifers first started going home in 2008 and 2009 and wondering, will I ever get a chance for that, for that to be me? So just again, thank you for being here with us in the Prison Post and just really excited for you to be here. We're excited. We're excited to see all the guys coming home after so many years, more and more guys coming home. Last year, 1,186 grants of parole. Yeah. That's great. 
That's amazing. Remarkable. I remember the times that you're talking about. I, when I, I was arrested in 1989, and I did 23 and a half years on a 27 to life. And my first mainline prison was Old Folsom. And I got to the yard at Old Folsom, and they says, oh, you got a first degree, don't worry about it. You're never getting out. And it sounded harsh, mm-hmm. but they were just trying to give me the real because at that time, nobody was getting out. Mm-hmm. And I, rem- I remember also in 2008 when guys started getting out, I remember we were all scared, you know. It'd be, oh, there was 247 uh, lifers paroled this year. I-, I hope nobody messes it up for the right, rest of us. Right. Oh, God, I, they, I hope they don't let the wrong guy out because nobody else will get out. Yeah. And, um, and it, it didn't happen, you know, and I'm so grateful, you know, I'm grateful. The 1,186 uh, grants of parole last year, is a, it, it is a miracle, you know. They, nobody thought that it would last, but um, l- paroled lifers are better citizens than the general population in the free world. Yeah. And, and we're proof of it. You know, yeah. we're doing we're doing pro social things at a at a degree that's higher than than most normal citizens. Just yeah. and just, the, the recidivism rate is so low. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Still, after all these years, decades and decades, mm-hmm. it's been one less than one percent. Right at one percent. It it is what it is. Guys that and women that do long periods of time, mm-hmm. you figure it out. You don't figure out that you don't commit it's not that you figure out you'll get arrested if you commit a crime it's you figure out yourself sure and you figure out how to live and you figure out how to deal with the stresses um that that got you in in trouble in the first place sure just in a better way so it's not that you figure out oh i just don't i'm not going to get caught you figure out yourself lifers know themselves better than most people on the street and i tell people all the time i'm safer in a room full of lifers even in a prison than I am with the idiot behind me in the grocery store line who probably doesn't wear a mask sure. right now. But that's that's what, what the guys can, and the women coming out are. I get in trouble because I say the guys all the time, but I call women guys too, so <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just go with the flow. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, earlier before we got started and when I called you, um, I didn't think that you, you knew that uh, Jason Bryant, you know, my colleague, my good buddy and friend, was going to be a co-hosting, and when I said his name, you said that you remembered his mom. Would yeah. you be willing to share that story? Yeah, I met Jason's mom, um, gosh, I can't remember how many years ago now. My nephew, who got me started in this, was at High Desert, mm-hmm. and Jason was at High Desert. Yes. You were on A Yard. Yes, I, yeah. was on, I started on the level 4 B Yard, yeah. and then moved to A Yard. Yeah. yeah, and my nephew was always on C Yard, mm-hmm. and so you know, I, I met your mom and visiting and, and at the Inmate Family Council and all those things, sure. but when, you know, when we went through the Sally Port, she went that direction, and we went the other direction right. to go visit my nephew, but yeah, I've, know, I've known your mom for years yeah. and enjoyed her. <laughs> <laughs> She's a character, that's She for is, sure. and her enthusiasm. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. full of energy, full of spirit. She and, is, uh, yes. Yeah. She's great, yeah. And and then my nephew left High Desert, um, and I left all of that. But right. I stayed in touch with the people that I knew up there. Your mom, mm-hmm. um, the lady that works in our office right now is a volunteer office manager. That's where I met her. Right. And her son has left High Desert, too. But some of the really good friends that I have in this little prison family world, I met at High Desert. Right. That was the first prison that I got deeply involved in was at High Desert. Um, I went up there and got on the inmate family council. In the second meeting, they made me the chairman yeah. because I have a mouth. <laughs> no one's noticed I have a mouth. Right. So, yeah, and, and there from then it was just. And that was how long ago? Oh, my gosh. That was 20 years ago probably. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah. actually went to a yard around 2002. Okay. So, so that was probably, yeah, you know, around roughly around then. Around yeah. that time. Yeah. Well, Vanessa, would you mind sharing some of your experience at High Desert? Like, what was that prison like? <laughs> yeah. High Desert was the first... You know, people ask me all the time, aren't you afraid being around all these prisoners? Mm. I've never been threatened by a prisoner, but I've been threatened by guards. Mm. And that was the first place that it happened. Sure. Um, the guards told me and another one of the ladies on the family council, who is a kindred spirit and making waves like I used to do, mm-hmm. that... You still make waves. I do still make waves. <laughs> but I was making waves at High Desert then. And they're cowboys up there, you know. They sure. they think that they're. I have to say it's not as bad as it used to be, but it, it's still kind of that way. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, as we were leaving one time after something had happened, oh, I challenged somebody. I I know what it was. 
we went into the visiting room and, you know, in the children's area, they have the TVs for the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, there were no kids there. So the football game was on, pointed at the, you know, the, where the guards were sitting oh, yeah. up at the dais. And I'm like, hey, I thought this was supposed to be for the kids. And you better make it for the kids because the kids are here. They would like to watch the TV. So as I left, one of the guards said to me, you know, we know what kind of car you drive. You better watch where you're going. Wow. Like, bring it on. Wow. You know? And they're supposed to be the ones protecting society from the criminals. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's not much difference, really. I mm-hmm. mean, it's a cross-section of people. Sure. I've met some really good guards mm-hmm. in my time doing this. And I've met some real – there was one that, at Avenal where Dave and I met that mm-hmm. um, I – my role, my goal was to give him a heart attack. <laughs> and I almost did mm-hmm. one day just because he was such a – he was he was an officer in the visiting room. Yeah, and, and you guys know if you've been to visiting, you know that the mm. visiting room staff always like to make up their own rules. Mm. And Vanessa knows that they're not allowed to make their own rules, um, so she'd always say, "Well, show me where that's written," <laughs> and they'd make a rule and. And she'd say, well, show me where that's written. They'd go up to their podium and spend 15 or 20 minutes looking through the book and then slam the book. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't in there. Yeah. yeah. Making rules like, I, me, I, you can't talk to anybody but him. You can't talk to anybody else in the room but him. Where is that written down? Right. Show me where that's written down. And, and she's like, wait a minute. I'm not a prisoner here. I'm right. a free person. And yeah. I, so one afternoon... Um, Someone came up to ask me something because everyone in the visiting room knew that I was doing stuff in Sacramento. And I answered this question. And Dave and I were in line for the vending machine. And this idiot came charging up to me and just started in about, you can't do this, you can't talk to people. And I'm like, show me where that's written. And he, he just kept it up and kept it up. And so I, I, don't, I learned a long time ago, when a bully leans into you, you don't back up, you lean in also. Mm. So I just verbally leaned in, very respectfully, very quietly. You could have heard a pin drop in that visiting room because everyone could see what was going on. Mm. And we just kind of went at it about, you know, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. Show me where that's written. I know that that's not right. I can quote you Title 15 better than you can. I can quote you the DOM better than you can. So here's what it says in the DOM. And finally he just said, well, I'm just doing what my boss told me to do. And I said, who's your boss? The warden. And I said, no, no, I'm your boss. Mm. I'm a taxpayer. I'm your boss. There you go. And he turned purple. He really did. He turned purple. I thought, oh, good. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) I really really don't want to kill anyone. Did Did you notice any change over the years in the way that staff related to visitors and incarcerated people in particular? I haven't been in visiting now for about seven years, roughly. Mm. Um, But, you know, it's so prison by prison in many cases. That it, it's, and I've had, a, I've talked with Ralph Diaz, Secretary of Corrections, about this. It takes a culture change, and it's hard to change that culture. It's like turning the Queen Mary around in a duck pond. Mm. You can't just turn. You got to go this, you know, you got to make all the little Y turns. Sure. And he's aware of that. He's aware the culture has to change. He's trying to get that done. I think it's a little better than it used to be, again, prison by prison. We've been to High Desert now several times to take our programs in there. Mm-hmm. And the guards have been pretty decent, although that's the one place of all the prisons we've been to that Dave was still on parole the last time we were there. And one of the guards said there, something. There was a sergeant that he pulled me up kind of sharp. He says, oh, so you're the guy. Yeah, because they, they knew that there was a parole lifer coming back in to do programs. Mm-hmm. He said, things sure have changed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they have. And, and we have. He wasn't happy about the change, but we, we were happy about it. Sure. We're still yeah. happy about it. Yeah, it's, it's better. And we're not done changing. Trust me. Um, you were talking about SB 260 and SB 261 and, and you know, the uh, bills and stuff that, uh, that have passed. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is that Venice is very well connected in the capital. And we've been behind those things, you know. We haven't been waving our arms and saying, hey, look at us and mm-hmm. let's go have a, a protest. But she's been quietly going, dropping into offices and gaining support for the things that make the biggest differences, really the biggest differences in the culture of, of what's going on with lifers. Yeah, and, speaking, 
you you spoke you were speaking earlier about the hopelessness of of arriving i don't know if i mentioned this but uh, when i when i got to old Folsom, they told me oh you're oh don't worry about it you're never getting you're never going to go home and and i remember in in 2008 some of my friends just barely started trickling out and i remember the feeling you were talking about about man i it's it I talk about this in our presentations. Man, it's really great. You know, I'm so glad people pat the guy on the back saying, oh, it's, it's, we're so glad you're going home. And nobody would ever say, man, I wonder if I'm ever going to make it. But you could see it in their face. Yeah. The thing that draws me back inside is I remember when I was found suitable. And I remember when I was leaving Avenal Yard 5. And, and I look back and nobody ever said it. They all says, oh, hey, you know, we're so glad you made it. We knew you were going to make it. And, and every one of them had that look in their face, like, I, I wonder if I'm ever going to get my chance. Right. Yeah. And, and I know that, you know, I'm sitting here in a room of three paroled lifers, including myself. You guys are great guys. And we left a lot of great guys behind. We left yeah. a lot of great guys behind. So speaking of that, you know, the, the prison post, part of our purpose, you talk about your work and connections, part of our purpose is to interview people who are, you know, making a difference, you know, making a difference, making an impact in the world of prison reform and the world of res- the restorative justice movement, going back inside, changing laws. And so um, that's why I wanted to when I when I when I was doing my research on who, who to interview and who should who should we invite. And, and you guys came up and I seen with Vanessa 25 years of 25 years of prison reform experience. And I just wanted to, you know, ask after like, what what is your story? What is the story behind Vanessa Nelson Sloan and how you got into this 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 movement and and would you be willing to share? Sure, my nephew um, got two life sentences at the age of sixteen. He and a bunch of friends broke into a house they thought was empty. And there were two people in the house. They roughed him up. Um, they didn't kill them. They didn't. It, there's no excuse for his crime. I mean, I'm not saying that, but it was. And they moved them from the living room of the house to the backyard. That's kidnapping, kidnapping. in California. So he got two life sentences for that. He was 16. He went to CYA for a couple of years, but two weeks before his 18th birthday, they shipped him to Corcoran, mm. level four mainline. So he went from being almost almost 18, still 17, and being in CYA with kids and teachers to a level four mainline prison. And, you know, before he was 18. And they said, oh, yeah, we should have waited until you're 18, but by the time we ship you there and then ship you back, you'll be 18, so just, you know, tough it out. So... He did, like a lot of young guys did when they go into prison, he spent the first few years trying to be tough because he felt he had to be tough. So he racked up some 115s, all of which he had to account for later on at his parole hearings. But his his grandfather, my dad, asked me to kind of help out. My dad was, my, my parents, who were kind of his rocks at the time, both died. And I made my dad a promise that I would stay working with him and see if I couldn't help him get out. Yeah. And it took a long time. But he was paroled about, gosh, it was, I think it was in September. It, I can't remember. It was yeah. only a few months ago. Yeah, it was it just a few months ago, ago. But, but he's out. And But I got involved in it. And the more I got involved in it, the more I found this doesn't make any sense. And this is wrong. And this needs to be fixed. And I am an inveterate fixer, so I just kept at it. And even after he went to different prisons, I met people that I could see the worth in them. And I met their families, and their families are just families. There's no criminal class. They're just families. Mm -hmm. This can happen to anybody. And I hear so many times I've had people say that. I never knew it was like this. No, no one does. No one, no one goes to search into prisons, really, unless you have a real personal interest. So I got started in it, and I have a knack for it, and I have a mouth, <laughs> and I have an attitude. She was cut out for this. There's no doubt in my mind that she, God brought her up to be just what she is today. Yeah, probably, because there has to be somebody doing this. So that's how I got started in it, and I just kept on and kept on, and there was always something else to do and always something else to do. And it dawned on me that lifers need to understand what it takes to become suitable for parole. That's the only way they're going to make it. And so I figured the only way I could figure this out is to understand it myself. So I started going to parole hearings. 
I was the first prisoner advocate in about 30 years that was allowed into a parole hearing as an observer. Wow. And I think since, 19, since 2011, when I started going to them, I think I've been to 150, 175 hearings. Wow. But I understand it. I get it. Um, you guys remember the big secret, what's it take to get out? Nobody knew. We were all trying to figure it yeah. out. Yeah. What was it, the magic key? Sure. Yeah. There isn't one. But I, I understand it. I understand the board. Um, I don't always agree, but I, I play a little game with myself. I go to hearings now, and I'll sit there for you know forty five minutes into the hearing because I take notes, which drives the DAs crazy because I'm taking notes. They always want to know what are you taking notes about. It's none of your business. But I'll, I'll play a little game with myself. Okay, I think this guy is going to make it, or he's not. And if yeah. he's not going to make it, how many years denial is going to be? I'm right about eighty percent of the time, and. You know, when they, go, they break for deliberations and the commissioners go off into their room, they send us all into a, the observers into a little room to wait. And sometimes a parole commissioner will come and get me, and there's a couple of them that open the door and say, okay, what do you think? They wanted to know what I think before they go in and do the decision. Not that it makes – it doesn't change their decision right. at all, but they're just curious as to my take on it because I've been to a lot, and they know that, that I'm going to take that information and my knowledge, and I'm going to pass it out. I'm going to give it to as many people as I can. So that's kind of how I got into it, and how do you how do you make your selections of which hearings you're going to, go to attend? Some of it is driven by the parole commissioner. If it's a new commissioner, mm-hmm. I want to see that commissioner because we're going to go speak at the confirmation hearings for those commissioners. Mm. Uh, some of it is if it's an attorney that we've heard some things about. I want to go see them. Some of it, I I would really like to get to a parole hearing at every institution because mm-hmm. every institution has its own flavor, sure. if you will. Um, the first one I went to was at, at Old Folsom, mm-hmm. and the guard who was leading me, escorting me back and forth, he had no idea who I was. And he was just telling me what a piece of junk this inmate was and how all and i'm thinking what the heck is this about right so jennifer schaefer the director of the parole board who's the one that allowed me to go to hearings um she asked me when i first started going she said tell me what you think so the first hearing i said look this is what i think i think this is unnecessary i think it is prejudicial i think that this guy has no business discussing this with anybody he doesn't know right and she said you're right and she took it up with the, the warden at the time at Old Folsom. That's never happened again. Mm. So we, we select hearings for certain reasons. And for, if it's like a two, 260 and 261 the hearings first started, we went to those who wanted to see how that does. Elderly parole, the same thing. Certain inmates that have certain strange or unusual facets to their case, I'll try to go to their hearings too. There are rules. I can't go to the hearing for anyone I know personally mm-hmm. or if I know the victim or the victim's family personally. I can't go to those hearings. That makes sense to me. Sure. Um, I started going to hearings really because I wanted to make the case to – BPH, that families should be able to go to parole hearings to show our support for you guys. Mm -hmm. But I've totally come around on that. I don't think that's a good idea for families to be in the hearings. Why is that? You guys have to be so brutally honest in those hearings. Mm -hmm. You have to bear everything in those hearings. And that's hard to do. As an example, one of the ladies that works um, with us from time to time, her son was molested as a child. Mm. And that came out in his parole hearing Mm. by a family member. That came out in his parole hearing as part of the reasons that he was such an angry young man. She didn't know that. Mm. And he has said it would have been hard to admit that had she been sitting there in the room. They have talked about it since then, and they've come to a good spot on that issue. But just to have your family there in the room, because you always want to protect your family. Like, we want to protect you. You want to protect your family. You can't be, I don't think you can be as brutally honest as you have to be if you have to worry about who's there watching you. Yeah. But it's been an education for me, and it's been a good education. And I think, go ahead. I think what you're saying is so valuable because our listeners are loved ones of the incarcerated. Our listeners and followers, we want to inform them. And so many of them are frustrated, including, you know, some of our family members are so frustrated. Like, what what does it take? And what does it take to be found suitable and how could I help? How could I help them? And I and I think that's what your organization does is it really focuses on the lifer. Why did you choose to um, for the lifer to be the, your niche? That's what my nephew was. They're a totally different class. You know, you guys know you're a totally different class in prisons. And I was I was really just working on prison reform in general, and spe- kind of 
headed toward lifers because that's what he was and that's what I was looking at. And then I met Dave, and that really kind of focused my direction on lifers permanently. Mm-hmm. And at, right after I met him is when we started Life Support Alliance. We're, Life Support Alliance is 10 years old now, a little over 10 years old. Life Support Alliance is the, the original lifer-specific advocacy group. Yeah, we used, we used to say lifers are us. It's kind of still true. You know, before, about a couple of weeks ago, I always thought it was Lifer Support Alliance. Yes. Just because of the so much that you've done and do and continue to do for lifers. I, I When I call, I say, oh, it's Life Support Alliance? Mm-hmm. So many people call us Lifer Support Alliance. It's right. just amazing. We had a, that was quite a discussion when, when there was another a lady that formed Life Support Alliance with me. And we talked about that at the time. And I kind of wanted to go for lifer, and she's like, "No, let's go life support because it sounds One like person. you know, yeah." And I'm yeah. like, I, I, "Whatever, let's just get past the name and let's get start doing stuff." Sure, so. sure. Sorry to cut you off. Go ahead, Jay. Oh, I was going to ask Vanessa, what, what is one of the most remarkable things that you've witnessed inside of a boardroom? <laughs> Good and bad. Good being a commissioner saying it's remarkable how much you've changed. Mm. And it's a powerful moment for me as a commissioner to see this change in a person. That's one of the best things I think I've ever seen. That's great. And one of the worst things I think I've seen is when the victim's family has threatened everyone in the room, including me. Mm. And there's, there's no recourse for that, for sure. lifers or for anyone. And I, I hurt for those people. I, I really do. I'm, I'm not anti-victim. I hurt for those people mm. because so many of them have un, untouched pain and it comes out in the boardroom. And I think if, there's, if I have an argument with the victims' groups at all, it is do something more to help your, your members. Sure. Don't just keep them in vengeance mode forever. We right. used to, when we first started this, and we were, we were down at the Capitol all the time, this was before I could go to parole hearings mm-hmm. or get back into the prisons, we came up with a saying that California cannot afford vengeance as public policy. And that's true. We can't. We as a nation, as a society, can't afford eternal vengeance as policy. It just doesn't work. Yeah, we agree with that. And punishment never worked to to transform anybody. And definitely vengeance. They need healing. They do. I think they need healing. They they definitely do. And I I would like to see that, to to help them do that. Because we, Dave and I really have, we have an understanding of victims. Mm -hmm. Um, I used before I did this, before this took over my life, I owned a couple of businesses. And in one of my businesses, I was robbed. Um, I was mugged. <laughs> I was broken into. You know, all I robbed at shotgun point. So I get that. I've been that business owner at the back of the business on the floor with a shotgun at the back of my head. I've been there. Mm-hmm. And that's not a place I want anyone else to be. I don't want people back out on the street. They're going to do that again. And Dave's been Dave's absolutely a victim of Venox, victims next of kin. Yeah, I was uh, uh, five and a half weeks before I committed my crime. I was shot in the in the shoulder, in the chest, and uh, it, it played a big part in uh, the course of my life at that time. You know, I mean, everything. Every one of us has had something that has put us in that situation. That was one of the big things. Um, but my life was out of control already, but I'd been shot. Um, it's only by the grace of God that it missed everything. It went through my shoulder. It missed my heart. It missed my lungs. And it was a wake up call that I didn't hear. Um, also six months after I got out, I, when I, when I went to jail, I was in a bad lifestyle. I was selling drugs and running the streets and, and I knew you know, I was. I went on the run for three days, and before I went to jail, I, I gave my little brother a, a wad of money and a bag of dope, and I says, hey, keep this rolling for me. I'm going to need some help while I'm in there. And he pretty much did. Six months after I got out, my little brother was murdered. Wow. Um, they were. He was shot in the face in the bedroom of his home uh, because he was involved in the lifestyle. They still haven't prosecuted anyone for his murder. That was... Uh, almost seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So wow. that's, you know, we get that that victim hurt. It's there, and it's real, and, and I don't discount it. But there's there's a lot of issues with that that I would like to, I'd like to see changed. I think it would do all of us good if some of that was changed. One of the things I wanted to ask is, uh, you're 
I wanted to ask David because I thought about when I when I called you and you shared that I work a full time job, and and so often when we're in the inside, we think they ought to do this and they ought to change this law and they ought to change that law, and I wish there were people doing this. But then when a lot of us lifers get out, we just we get busy with the the daily flow of life and we just forget in some ways our brothers and sisters left behind and we're too busy to to reach back out and we start getting calls in the beginning maybe from from the, from the prison phones or some letters and then we stop we start falling off and that was then this is now what drives you to work a full-time job and then when you get off work you go to LSA and and you continue this work I don't know. I think I might be crazy. You guys know a good psychologist? <laughs> I think we do. <laughs> no. Um, so I remember I remember where I came from. That really, that's the, the, the short answer is I remember where I came from. I remember that, you know, how many years I spent w- wondering, thinking that I'm not a stupid person. There, there has to be a way to do this. There are people getting out. Every two or three years I'd hear about a life or parole. And, and so if one guy can make it, another guy can. And uh, I knew. So I told you that my life was out of control. But I knew the moment that I pulled that trigger I looked over my shoulder and I saw a man fall to his to the ground dead. I knew in my heart I knew he died instantly and and that I'd made the biggest mistake of my life and that it was time to really turn myself around. And even though even though it seemed kind of like too late, prison was a rescue for me. Mm. You know, um, I tell people that I wouldn't recommend going to prison to anyone, but um, I wouldn't be the man I am today if it hadn't been for that. And I know you guys can both attest to that. Yeah, And absolutely. so um, I, all the time I spent in prison, you know, trying to figure out what the deal was, not wanting to accept the fact that for a long time there was a literal no parole, underground no parole policy. Yeah. And uh, so then when people finally started getting out, um, we had groups and there was a group at Avenal that was called the Timeless Group, and and I worked my way up to be a facilitator, and I learned how to do public speaking there, and and uh, and it really boils down to making a change that was so elusive to me that now that I've made the change, I want I I I have a drive inside of me to share that change with the people that still need it. Yeah. You know? um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, AA and twelve-step programs. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you are, but um, you can tell if a if a guy's got recovery, he can see somebody that doesn't really easy. But if you don't, you don't know who's who. You sure. Know? So once you've made the change, you can see the change in somebody else. But before you make the change, you have no clue. And once I made the change, I saw so many people that were just clueless about about what they needed it's 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 simple once you get it it's simple you know you just need to take a really good look at yourself i tell guys on the inside i say you know one of the hardest things you'll ever do is take a really good strong hard look at yourself one of the hardest things you'll ever do in life i said but that's that's what's necessary in order to be found suitable for parole that's what's necessary in order to make the change that we want you to have Mm. you know i've I've made a change in my life. My life has changed in such a dramatic form. I would, you know, the the old way of life isn't has no draw for me anymore. I'm happier now than I've ever been. And and one of the things that makes me happy is being able to share that ability to be happy with yeah. other people. And and I see you guys re- register what I'm talking about. Oh, so. you, know, you asked me about one of the most impactful times in prison. We were at High Desert mm. about a couple of years ago. We were doing our one of our courses up there. And this was right after, I think it was SB 9 passed, where if you got an LWAP under 18, mm. you know, you automatically got a parole hearing after 25. And we were on D yard up there, which is, you know, still an active yard, as sure. they say. Very 180. Active. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, and there was a bunch of guys in there, and we were kind of waiting to get started. And there was one guy sitting in the front, and he looked so young. And I said, so when are you going to go to board? He was kind of just looking around, and he said, oh, I'm, L- I'm LWAP. And I'm like, well, when did you when did you get this? Um, he was 17 when he got an LWAP sentence. And I said, 
you're going to go to board. How long have you been down? He'd been down 12 years. You've got 13 years, you're going to go to board. No. And I said, yeah, I happen to have a CLN with me. And we had done just done an article on that. Wow. I opened it up and gave it to him. And he's reading this. And his eyes are literally opening. Mm. And he's trying to write all this down. I'm like, keep that because that is you. And he looked up at me because I was standing up and he was sitting in a chair. And he said, you mean I'm not LWAP anymore? No. Not unless you want to be. That was that was so wow for me because this guy all of a sudden he saw there's there's a door there sure and I can get that door open and I told him he said you have got 13 years to get your butt out of a level four and down someplace to a oh, level yeah. two where you've got better programming better chances all of that the power of hope that's absolutely hope, it. hope is a powerful and thing. and you, yes, you could see his eyes literally opening as he was reading that article oh my god this was a this was a revelation to him in the best possible way. That was one of the best moments I ever had, was that. One guy. One guy. That's great. And she sprung. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I couldn't leave this now if I had to, really. Well, in all of your experience, Vanessa and David, what would you say is the one single greatest thing that needs to change in the Department of Corrections right now? The culture. The culture. The culture. Yeah. Because. Green or blue? Both. Both. Mm. Both. And boy, I take heat for this. Mm. <laughs> because one of the things we try to, you know, in addition to the classes we take into the prisons, we do seminars for the family members too. Mm-hmm. The only people that are more at sea when some guy goes into prison is their family because they don't get anything. You know, you guys go into prison and there's other guys there to kind of help you figure this out. Okay. One way or the other. But the families don't get that. Usually the other. Yeah, usually the other. <laughs> but the families don't get that. They're just left out there. What the heck am I going to do? How do I do this? What happens? Do I yep. need another attorney? So we try to do you know the seminars for that. But I get families coming to the seminars, and they're like, well, he got denied for, for three years, and it was just because they don't like him. It, classy case. A little lady called me up. God love her. She was 82 years old, and she has a fiancé at High Desert. I love an optimist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, but her fiance is at high desert and she's like, and they just denied him parole and they don't like him. They denied him because he's black. I'm like, probably mm. not. So let me, let me look at this. So I got his transcript. Okay. So I called her back up and I'm like, you know, the reason they're denying him is because every six months he gets a 115 for making Pruno. Mm. That's why they're denying him. But, but I don't drink it. I'm only selling it. Exactly. Mm. I'm like, I don't, no, that, that doesn't cut. So there's that kind of, of attitude in the families that everything that the Department of Corrections does is wrong. CDCR has a bunch to answer for, but not everything they do is wrong. Right. And I have an issue right now with the, the popular... Pr- prison abolitionists. Yeah, who say, let everybody out right now. Mm. So you- let me just say... There are, I've met thousands of prisoners. <laughs> There's some guys that aren't ready to come out. Mm. There's some guys, you, and you, you know, guys know, you know them. Oh, we know this. Yeah, you know this. Yes. But families and other people don't know that. Let them all out right now. Oh, no. There's three women in prison that if they come out, I'm going into hiding. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's just, I, I'm having a hard time with that. Yeah. Because I want to tell people, no. We have prisons for a reason, not good reasons always, but and you can't you can't abolish the police force because if someone's breaking into your car, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters? Mm. You know, you've got to have something. Do we need to change that? Absolutely, but it's that culture in the the inmates that and the families sometimes that think that everything CDC does is wrong, and it's the culture on the green side that that prisoners and family members are less than. Right. They're a subspecies. And, let, That's, and let's face it, there's never going to come a time when there isn't something that needs to change. Right. Sure. Really? There's always going to be something that needs to change. And we, you know, we all we can do is hope to push in our direction harder than they're pushing back in the other direction. Sure. I think it's it's a little bit of both and, right? Like It is. Uh, the culture inside, and it starts with the individuals making the choice to change their lives, to transform their lives, and then having the support not only from the community, but from the department. Yeah, and, the, and from their families. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of guys inside that are in that process of change, and they're doing very well in that process of change. Their families haven't come along with them mm. in that. And some of them recognize it. 
Some of them say, I can't go back. I love my family. That never changes. But I can't go back to that. Right. I've got to go someplace else. And they're right. And that's, that, is a, that is a testament to their insight and their maturity that they recognize that. We'd like to be able to help their families come along that way too. But it's, it's not easy. It's not easy for you guys. It's not easy for the families either. You know, I think about my own story. And my grandpa wrote me a letter back in 1997 when I was in the Air Force. And he was saying he, the letter was a tough love letter. He said, you know, when you come home, you need to spend some time with us, you know, start thinking positive, stop blaming everybody, start taking some responsibility from yourself. And I'm in the military and it's like on the outside, it looks good because I have the uniform on. But on the inside, I'm just selfish and and drinking and doing drugs, underage drinking, uh, completely a mess. And all that culminated with me getting myself and involved myself in crime, becoming a drug addict and going to, and going and getting a life sentence. And I remember it was like 11 years later after, after um, transforming my life inside of there that my grandpa kept that letter, sent it to me with a new letter saying, today I believe that, today I believe that you have become a new man. Or my mom coming into the visiting room in like 2008 and 2009 saying, I don't, I don't want you to be here anymore, but I'd rather have the son that I have today than the one that you were back then. Yeah. So wild. So early on, I would say there's no, there's, there's, I needed to be there. Yeah. And, and a lot of people would, would disagree with that. A lot of people wouldn't like that statement. But for me, I needed to be there. It's, it was the place where I had to get humble. I had to get my education. I had to get stopped in my tracks. And, um, and make some decisions. Uh, you know, I, I was in Soledad for 18 years and two months. And it was a place where I learned what it means to be a man. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I, I don't think I was ever taught that growing up. And I had like this false idea of masculinity. And, and um, I learned what it, meant, what it meant to be a man. I learned how to get in my education and how to help people and serve others. And, and got sober. Um, this year is 20 years. And so I know I, I can relate to what you're talking about. It's hard, and it's hard for the families because they don't, they don't always understand it. You know, this is their, their son, their daughter, their brother, whatever, and it, they just they don't understand it at all. My family was no different, and, and that's, that's why I can really understand it. My family was no different. You know, my nephew, was when he got his sentence, the judge at the time said to him, we're going to make an example of you nice little middle-class white boy, mm-hmm. and they did. You know, they charged him with everything they possibly could. But that's what happens. Mm-hmm. And my family never really understood it either. To this day, my brother, his father, doesn't understand at all what was going on, how this all happened. I get it, partly because I've read the transcripts. Transcripts, years ago, there was a, a female life or woman life where they got out, Flozelle Woodmore, God love her. She passed away several years ago. But right after she got out, I talked with her, and I said, what do you want to tell people on the inside? And she said, read your transcripts because therein lies your freedom. And that's really true. If you can read those transcripts, and if your family can read those transcripts with an unjaded eye, just looking at this as how it comes across, not that you know that person, you can figure out those flaws, you can figure out where you need to work, you can figure out where you need to improve. Yeah. We have a friend named uh, uh, James coming home uh, on Friday. Um, Jason's trying to get permission to go pick him up, actually. Yeah. And 28 years. Yeah. 28 years. Mm-hmm. And I think about James' story and the first 20 years of incarceration, he ran wild. You know, he did everything that you're not supposed to do. Probably had, what, how many 115s? A lot. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And a a ton of 128s as well. Yeah. And, but the lights came on about eight years ago. And he's one of the best, best guys that I've ever known now. Just one of the most, probably the most transformed person I've ever met now and after 28 years he'll be getting out and I know that part of uh, Life Support Alliance you guys help on the reentry side what are some advice there or thoughts that you would have for the long-term uh, offender the person getting out after 25 28 years you take that one yeah I'll take that one um I got out after 23 years and I, I paroled to Restoration House which is a it no longer exists, but at the at, when it did, I think was probably the best transitional house ever. Yeah, I was there too, and yeah. but, <laughs> that was awesome. Um, a lot of guys want to run straight home to their family, and I think that's a big mistake. I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's really self defeating because 
it's it's embarrassing asking people that don't understand where you're at how to use a debit card mm. or how to get on the train or how to get on the bus or you know you know how do you act in a grocery store um and in a in a transitional housing place where there's other lifers it's important that there's other lifers there because we relate right um they can tell you you know they can teach you the little things that you're going to be embarrassed asking mama for and uh and that when your dar your loved one whatever here's three or four of those they start getting like well where, where are, you, are you stupid where you been and and you feel stupid we get out of prison and we we feel like we get this tattoo across our forehead that says paroled lifer you know uh, you guys know the feeling and yeah. um and that comes from all of the things that we've missed sure. you know and and but and we are we are um, stupid's not a good word but we're we're uneducated out of the, the loop we're yeah <laughs> the, the, loop. The, the correct word is sure. ignorant but that's got a negative connotation to it so sure. you can't use that but i mean it's like rip van winkle yeah mm-hmm. it's there's we it's like parole into another planet we you know we came from this one place another thing that's astounding to me is that you know when i got out of prison i got out not just to a place that looked familiar but wasn't familiar Mm -hmm. but um also trying to live a a lifestyle that i'd never tried to live before Mm -hmm. you know there was there was always an aspect of my lifestyle even though i used to have a job and i tried to have a family i always had this little like this secret life that went along with it and I, i don't have the secret life is gone now it's things have changed so much for me that it's like parole into a new planet. So we need people around us that understand that. And our loved ones, no matter how much they love us, they don't understand that. They don't understand it. So um, do yourself a favor when you get out. If you've done more than 12 years, go to transitional housing. And go slow. Don't rush. Yeah, You can't make up for the time you lost. I wanted my daughter's 32 years old and I remember she was a year old when I went to prison and I remember when I got out I thought to myself man I just want to I just want to you know hold my daughter in my arms like a little child and and I said that to my wife and she says oh no you don't (laughs) what he said was I just can't wait to have my daughter on my knee and she's like she's 29 years old yeah she's not gonna be on your knee (laughs) but but I get it it, I, and I understand, you know, it was a little goofy, but mm-hmm. but that's what I wanted, you know. Sure, I mean, yeah. and I, I I missed a lot of stuff. Sure. And I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna get it back. Yeah. So. David, you you talked about um, uh, being one of the first people uh, going back on the inside while on parole. Yeah. And I know that you guys do the amends project and connecting the dots. Would you speak to those two programs for? Um, and, and maybe also in the newsletter for the, for the family members of the incarcerated out here, how they can get informed through your newsletter. Okay, so the, the newsletter, uh, Lifer Line, is free. Uh, it comes by email. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of really great aspects to the newsletter, the, the Lifer Line newsletter, and that is the, the fact that it comes by email to the family members. They get to print it and mail it into their prisoner, their loved one. It gets them engaged. It helps to get them uh, tangently engaged in in the fight to come home. Mm. So um, it, rather than uh, it, it gives the uh, the family members an opportunity to start to try to help. It also gives them if they read it, it gives them things to talk about other than you know goofy stuff that we usually talk about in the division. Sure. So um, it's free. It comes once a month in email. Um, it also once you know once you're on our serve list, you get information about all the rest of the stuff we're doing. So, and we've been doing that for quite a long time. Vanessa is the primary author of that. I'm the only one. We started it ten years ago, and when I first started it, Dave was in Avenal, and I was sending in like six copies to him. Now we have an email serve list of what is it? Twenty five hundred people. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And and that's not to mention we've got four hundred five hundred indigent prisoners that get the e- the newsletter through our uh, mail volunteer. mail tree volunteer mail tree which is like 50 people mm-hmm. who send in anywhere from 3 to 10 newsletters each so 
And they can uh, sign up for that through by going to your website at mm-hmm. lifesupportalliance.org. Mm-hmm. Life, www.lifesupportalliance.org. Go to our website. There's a ton of information there. Um, hopefully we'll get a uh, thing for you. Me and Jay, we, we, I, think, I think the limit when we're in Soledad to get into the, um, the amends project was about 100 people. Yeah. And we missed the cut. So we didn't get to experience it, but I saw the paperwork for... Uh, your content for the amends project and and connecting the dots and would you just share about that so the um, connecting the dots let me talk about that real quick and then i'll let vanisa talk about the amends project um we actually had the cart before the horse connecting the dots should be gone through before the amends project because of what it the foundation it Mm -hmm. gives for amends so connecting the dots is basically a really simple process of uh, self-examination in order to discover the causative factors of your crime. It's insight. It's an insight course. And we um, we go in normally, uh, the standalone project, we go in twice, two uh, two two-hour sessions, about a month apart. We go in. Uh, it's based on my story, uh, my life story. Um, I explain the causative factors in my life that led to my crime. Um, We send them home for a month to write their own life history, to start coming up with some of their own causative factors. And, uh, and then we come back and we, and we carry it out. And the the five dots to connecting the dots. And there's, there's um, a lot of, there's a lot of sets of these five dots, but the five dot progression is, uh, ace events of your life, which is the adverse childhood experiences, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to be childhood. Uh, what, one of my last ace events was five and a half weeks before I went to prison was getting shot. It was a, that was an adverse event that, that played, had a big impact on my life, right? Uh, the, what that ace event causes you to feel and believe. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but we all operate on what we believe in. you know without fail every one of us and so the third dot of those five dots is the uh the behavior that follows the belief uh the fourth dot is how those behaviors all tied into our life crime and then the fifth dot is what we put in place of that thought or behavior or belief in order to be to make the change and so um, it's a process of learning how to understand yourself, really. And uh, uh, the amends project is... And the Connecting the Dots program, is that in all prisons? I mean, I'm sure the content's floating around, but are, how many <laughs> how many uh, prisons do you guys go to a year to, to teach that program? Gosh, as many as we can get into. You know, we have to be invited by a group. We can't just go knock on the door and say, oh, we're here. I've been back inside. I've been back inside 13 prisons. Yeah. And That's amazing. All, on parole. Yeah. Um, we actually are in the process, I'm, and I don't know where we're at with getting uh, statewide brown cards. So oh, that wow. we'll, we'll have brown cards for the whole state. The men's project came out of my going to parole hearings and hearing the commissioners asked the guys that were there, have you written an apology letter to your victims? And most of them don't really know how to do that. That's a hard thing to, mm-hmm. you know, it's one thing to apologize to somebody for stepping on their toes, but to apologize for killing a relative, that's a hard thing to oh, do. Yeah. But there was no way to do that. There was no there was no path for that. You know, it used to be um, you could send a letter of apology to the Office of Victim Services. They'd send you back a little form letter. We got your letter of apology. We don't do that anymore. Haven't done it for years. So there was no place for these guys to go with this. So I, there has to be a way. So we researched eleven states that have uh, victim and offender apology processes, mm-hmm. and we came up with the Amends Project, which we go through this and with the guys, and we give them all the tools they need to come to an understanding of how to write a good letter. And then they send their letters to us, and we vet their letters. Okay, yeah, we, you know, if you go back and look at the handout we gave you on this subject, you'll find that you're not supposed to use that word. Right. And they get three tries, and if they write a successful letter, then we send them a certificate. We send them their letter, their copy of their letter back. So they can take that to the parole board. And when the parole board asks them, have you done this? Yes, I have. Now, there's no real way for them to get that to the victims, obviously. But a lot of times victims are there at the parole hearing, and they'll get it then because they hand it in to the commissioners who hands it to the DA who hands it to the victims. So that's how that process goes. In the 
four years that we've been doing the amends project. I can't remember how many certificates we've given out, but we did kind of a research about a year ago, and 28% of the guys that went through the project have paroled. Oh, wow. So we, we know that it's doing some good things. And we've had, we've had emails from paroled lifers that have also said that uh, yeah. uh, as far as connecting the dots, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's, it was the key to my freedom, one guy said. Yeah, and, and just getting these guys ready to write the amends letters, is, is, that's a chore. That, that's a, a step. So we've done that. We take that program in also to as many prisons as we can. But, you know, because of all of this that's going on, we've turned mm. them into correspondence courses. Mm. So those are available too correspondence courses right now so that's something that we're trying to do i wish i could do this full time i'd 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 go to prison (laughs) five nights a week i know everybody thought i was crazy you spent 23 and a half years trying to get out now you're doing everything you can to get back in what's the matter with you i have to admit the first time the first one we went back into he was a little he was a little weird i I had a panic attack in the (laughs) parking lot it was it was i thought they were going to keep you (laughs) understandably so what do you think david is is the most gratifying about going inside and providing these services to men and women who are incarcerated Oh, see, watching the change. Yeah. Just watching the change. Man, it is amazing. Mm-hmm. Watching those eyes open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, you know, you get a and, – and we've done level twos, and, and the guys in level twos are like, you know, they're 90% of the way there. Maybe we're helping them over the last little hump sure. to get them home. But we've done level fours, too. And we've had discussions about this. I don't know if uh, we do the most good in the twos or the fours. We're actually getting ready to start going into uh, – a new Folsom here pretty soon. On a regular basis. When, whenever, whenever COVID <laughs> flattens out a little bit. For those but, in our audience who don't know what a level four or level two is, would you share? Yeah, so a level four is for the really hardcore criminals that, uh, that, you know, that are fresh off the court docket and are still real rough from the streets and, uh, le- and, and that have committed some pretty bad crimes and the level and it's a high security institution it's the it's the h- highest security outside of a shoe program for a main line and then a level two is for the guys that have either committed you know lightweight crimes and aren't aren't real hardened criminals or that have worked their way down from the level fours yes. to the level twos by by behaving themselves so that's the difference you know i mean I hope I covered it right. Sure. So, so um, we go we go to the level fours, and there's always this little cadre of guys back in the corner that's making jokes and cracks and everything, and and we take connecting the dots in, and and uh, and I and, yell at them once in a while. Yeah, and they and they'll say, well, and we tell them, well, you got to write your life history. And one guy said one time, he says, well, you ain't got enough money to make me write my history and i'm like fine it's you you know right. you don't you don't have to change if you don't want to it's, it's your life you know, right do, right. It, do what you want. you want you don't have to do nothing sure. on the return trip a month later that's the guy with the most important question mm. you know and and you they get a month to think about whether or not they want to apply this to their life and you and you think these are the guys that haven't had anyone even talk to them about change yet Right. And now we're planting a seed in their mind that, you know what, well, m- maybe there is a different life. Maybe maybe there is a chance at change. And you spoke about a guy that did 20 years in that very spot before something clicked. And he said, oh, a, a change? Or was a guy that uh, I knew from, I knew him from a kid. His name was Johnny. It's still Johnny. But uh, Johnny and I knew each other. Johnny got two life terms a couple of months before I went to jail. And, uh, you know, and we did a, uh, there was a long period of time and I ended up uh, running across him in Corcoran. Corcoran's, for those of you who don't know, Corcoran's one of the worst prisons in the system. So I was at uh, Corcoran on the 3C yard, and, and I ran across Johnny, and it's like, oh, wow. And he's almost like family, and so we became cellies, and Johnny was stuck, you know. And he says, you know, Corcoran's a level three, and, he's, you know, we were cellies for a while, and I tried to help fill up his locker before I left and all kinds of stuff. And, and then I left, and he says, you know, he says, as soon as you go, I'm going to go back to level four. He says, it's level three. It's not, it's not hard enough for me. i gotta, mm. I got to go back to the level four. And, I'm, and it kind of broke my heart. And so um, I correspond with Johnny now. He's in a level two, and he's trying to do the things it takes but he had to get to that place in his life where he was ready to make the change. Right. 
Yeah. And that's what each and every person in there needs to do. We got a couple couple minutes left here. I know right now you're raising money on your website for the mental health project, <laughs> and um, yeah. it's an important project. We just before before closing it out, and uh, would you share a little bit about that? Yeah, um, right now with everything closed down, there's nothing for anybody to do, and this it's hard. You know, it's really hard, and we hear this from the families, we hear this from the from the prisoners. So it came to our attention that um, someone in CDCR, a clinician, had come up with some programs to do in-cell study instead of group study, in-cell study. Mm. One on anger management, one on depression, which who doesn't need that? Okay. But CDCR was sitting on these. The mental health department was sitting on these. I have to say that I've come to the conclusion that the biggest goal of the mental health department in CDCR is to make guys stable enough to finish their term without committing suicide. That's pretty much about it. But so we started, we found, we got these programs. We got the entire curriculum on these two. I'm not going to say how we did that, but we did. And we started trying to get these, get the prisons to present these, to offer these to the men and women in the prisons. In-cell study. Just, you give, just run a copier and pass them out. Right. That's and all. then the clinician stops by maybe once a week and says, how are you doing with this? Takes the, the responses and goes through them anyway. That wasn't successful. So we put it out there on our newsletter. This is available. Ask for it with the 7325 form. And guys did, and women did, in in numerous times. Some of the prisons contacted us and said, what is this? I'm sending CDCR's own material back into them so they can use it. But a lot of them said, no, we're not going to do this. This is just, why, why would we want to take the time? So... We're making this available, making these two programs available, anger management and depression. It's the entire CDCR curriculum, and we're also including a COVID stress workbook. We're sending it in, we're printing it, and we're sending it in. And we have um, social workers and psychologists that work with us. They're going to review the homework from these guys. We're going to issue the certificate. I've told the B- I told this to the BPH yesterday, and basically it comes down to this. CDCR dropped the ball on this. They totally dropped the ball. They had a chance to shine. They did. They had a chance to shine. And one of the people I was talking to about this, he said, this could have been our chance to shine, but we shot ourselves in the foot. And I'm like, well, I think the wound is a little higher up the torso, but basically, yes, you did. <laughs> okay. But so they dropped the ball. We've picked it up, and it's game on. We're putting these out That's to everybody great. we can. So it's about 200 pages. And so we print double-sided. So it's 100 actual physical pages of paper. Um, it's costing us about $10 per person to, to produce the packet and mail it in. And that's what we're raising the money for. We can't afford to, and we've, we've already had over 200 requests. We've already put, um, a hundred of them in the mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, we expect, we expect to put out probably a thousand of these, uh, when it's all. So there's work for them to accomplish and then yes. they mail it back to you. Yes. Okay. And then once they, and we go, our, our, our psychologists and social workers go over it. Mm-hmm. It looks like these guys have done the work they need to do. We'll give them a certificate. That's great. And the board knows about this. So this is great for lifers. Plus it's just good that they have the information. That's the biggest thing. It's good sure. they have the information. Sure. And if you want to donate to that, we have there's a button on our website that's entitled Mental Health Project. Just click on the button, uh, donate any amount you want, and we will put it to good use, guaranteed. That's right. All right. Thank you, David. Any uh, final final questions you'd like to ask, Jay? Uh, I mean, so many. I know we're <laughs> kind of yeah. tight for time here. Um, let me think. One that would come to mind for me would be in regards to the time credits. So I know that you're familiar with the new release by the department mm-hmm. in the wake of COVID-19. How do you feel about um, violent offenders being excluded and lifers kind of being excluded from this conversation about time credits? Lifers have been excluded from so many things yeah. all they, throughout history. They need to include those in not in release because they can't legally, but in moving their hearing forward a bit. Now, having said that, I understand this is a hard thing for BPH to do. Mm-hmm. They schedule 8,000 hearings a year. 8,000 hearings a year? Yeah. And so to change that all around takes a little time. But lifers need that. They need, it in, they need to figure out some way to apply those credits in some manner, either bring their hearings forward some or making that like another course that they've taken. Sure. Something to, to give them that acknowledgement also. Sure. 
And and I did have one more. Um, what do you think is like the most needed um, resource, maybe, or conversation that needs to be had to help the community understand that there are lifers, violent offenders who are safe to return? Home? Education. Yeah, I think it's stuff like this. If we could get this kind of information out, and I speak every time I can. Mm-hmm. I've done editorials and newspapers, whatever. People just need to be educated. They need to understand that that one mistake is not a lifetime. Sure. We deal with a lot of lifers at parole, and, and in my experience, my estimation is that more than half of the lifers who parole get engaged in some type of pro-social activity that's uh, beyond the average citizen, Mm -hmm. at least by some measure. They're always engaged in AA or NA, active in it. Uh, Most, um, a lot of guys get engaged in youth of some kind of form or another. Uh, Look what you guys are doing. I mean... Uh, we've learned that give, you know giving back is is beneficial. It's you know it's it feeds my life. Sure. And any final words for you, from you from um, uh, family members of the loved ones wondering if is my son or daughter ever going to come home? It's been ten years, been fifteen years, twenty years. Yes, they can come home. There's no guarantee. It depends on their change, and their change can be helped by you, by you looking at your life and their life with the same kind of realistic eyes that the board requires of them. You can't continue to say, he'll never do it again. You can't make that excuse. You have to support that life change. And if you need help in understanding that, come to the seminars. Come to come get on our newsletter list. We'll help you understand that. You are as important to that change as they are. If nothing changes, nothing changes. David, Benisa, Sloan, thank you very much for joining us today on the Prison Post. Uh, This conversation has definitely been informative, and we would like to uh, invite our listeners and followers to check you out on lifesupportalliance.org and also follow you on Facebook. Yes, we have Facebook page, and and we have Life Support Alliance Facebook page, and then there's Life for Success Association for Paroled Lifers on Facebook. All right. Thanks so much. Are you guys on our uh, Life for Success Association uh Facebook page, Join. either one of me. I would love to be. Join. I would love to be. Yeah. Not need, yet. You need to be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely get the newsletter. Every, uh, I get your almost daily email. Yeah, on COVID uh, and yeah. the COVID check. Nobody is giving a, a, a more clear and precise, uh, detailed analysis of what's going on with COVID inside the institution and Life Support Alliance. Yeah. Thank you. It's daily. Thanks for the appreciate opportunity. You. Thank you both so much. No, thank you guys. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. We appreciate. it. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our videocast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.